Well, good afternoon. We're glad to have you. Last class, last day. I always give myself this spot. It's just a challenge to see who's still awake. 3.15 to 4.15 on Friday. This is the uh, three-class track on restoration history. So two days ago, we had Victor, and he gave us the history of Don DeWelt. And uh, wow, that was great. The centennial tribute to Don DeWelt. <coughs> Yesterday, Carice gave us four women from her book on the history of four women in the restoration movement. Now today started out with, you know, I first thought, I'll do a class on all the women hymn writers in the Church of Christ. Well, that class would last less than a minute. So uh, I had to change my title. We haven't produced a lot of hymn writers. Ironically, the one that, uh, uh, the one that we honored one year at the lecture, Sylvia Rose Cobb, she's written over 200. Um, but they're mostly sung in black churches. She wrote them when she was directing the choir at the Southwestern. And so, uh, Boy, you, after you leave her, we haven't done much. So I changed the title to Women Hymn Writers in the Hymnals of the Restoration Movement. <laughs> Who did we enjoy in the hymnals? Now, everybody needs a hymn book. We're not going to sing because we would bother the class next door. So they're on either end. So let's pass them out real quick because mostly we're just going to look at lyrics. There's quite a few hymnals back there, so there should be one for every person. Yeah, raise your hand if you still don't have one. Are we all set? Okay, I should open by saying, which Randy and Rich, all my former song leaders here know, I can't sing a lick. I know nothing, I can't read music. I'm a historian. And I've grown up on these lyrics that I'm going to show you. And this isn't scholarly, it's sort of story time with Jerry. And I'm just sort of, I'm going to tell you what I think are the, are the best, and then you can counteract me. So, um, and also I didn't bring a clicker, so my friend's going to help me change. So here's our title, Take My Voice and Let Me Sing. That's from Frances Ridley Havergal. So we'll get to her in a moment. And uh, Women Hymn Writers in the Hymnals of the Restoration Movement. Okay, next slide. Here are the 15 women in the British Isles, this is the UK 15, that were the best for me. They may not be for you. And so I'll say a word about them and then we'll go back. Who gets credit in any book you pick up for being the first woman to publish in an English hymnal? And it's always Anne Steele. She was Baptist. She lived down in the south, so down close to the English Channel. She lived down by Salisbury Cathedral, if you know where that is. And she lived in the town of Broughton, B-R-O-U-G-H-T-O-M. But she's the first one, but she barely makes it. Anna Letitia Aiken, and I wish that's how she was listed in our hymn book. She married Mr. Barbold, and I'm sure she was in love with him. But he had mental problems. He tried to harm her. He finally had to be hospitalized, institutionalized. And she loved her father. He was a minister, Aiken. She, she ought to be in our hymn books as Anna Letitia Aiken. In fact, that, that's who she was when she wrote her first hymns. 
And she's only five years behind Ann Steele. And um, the story of this hymn I'm going to show you about Ann Steele, you've probably never sung, but the one from Anna Letitia Barbold, I mean, they each wrote a bunch, but again the Lord of light and life awakes a kindling ray, unseals the eyelids of the night, and pours increasing day. I don't know why this happens, but when I get in a car, and, and that's where I sing, I don't sing in the shower. <laughs> I'm trying to not fall in the shower, you know, I'm usually... Uh, so in the car, though, boy, I can, uh, I sound great in the car. And uh, if I just start driving early some morning, I'm doing research in Washington or, you know, wherever, Oregon, I'm singing, again, the Lord of light and life awakes a kindling ray, unseals the eyelids of the night, and pours increasing day. And, and that just automatically, I don't think, I ought to sing that. I just get in my, and I've been doing this all my life, and I can't quite figure it out. It's not that great a hymn that it would dominate my whole life. The third one, then, is Dorothy Ann Thrupp, and she only has one hymn. But Charlotte Elliott writes several, but we only know, for, know her for uh, have, uh, uh, have I don't, I mean, uh, just, as I am. just as I am, yeah. The, um, I'm leading my hymns tour next week, my 19th, and we always start at a church uh, in about eight miles out of Winchester. And uh, the minister there, he's retired now, but he came forward to that song at a Billy Graham crusade. And, he always wants us to sing it. It was a turning point for him. Ann Richter just has one hymn. Elizabeth Mills just has one. Her husband was a member of parliament, an MP. We sing this, we'll sing it next week, in the Pepperdine House in London, because she lived in London. But she died when she was 27. This is a song about a woman who's ready to die, and she wants to go to heaven. And we've turned it into a gospel song. It's got an 1870s feel when we sing it, which when I was in Christian high school in Canada, we loved to sing this. It rocked. And we, uh, but it's the wrong music. And I, and I always open by saying to my tour group, can somebody write something better for this? Because this woman's dying. This is a soft song. We've turned it into a marching song. Um, Sarah Flower Adams only wrote the one. Oh, she wrote a lot of songs, but she's only famous because they were singing her song or playing it when the Titanic went down. I can't say that that's a favorite song of mine. I don't know that I've heard that in a long time, but it's on the list. Certainly famous if you see the movie Titanic, you know. Um, and Borthwick is not a hymn writer. Borthwick and, uh, where is she? Catherine Winkworth. The two Borthwick sisters and Catherine Winkworth are a totally different gift that I don't understand. The gift of translating. How can you take a German hymn and translate that beautiful German hymn into English and make it rhyme? I don't understand that. That's a gift that is beyond my poor imagination to figure out how can you be that gifted to know German well enough and English well enough that you can translate and even make it come out like it was, that's what you meant to say all along. And, uh, okay, well, let's back up to Ann Steele. Turn to 815. So you need nimble fingers now. We're going to go quick. Ann writes a lot of hymns, but I think this is the most famous. So here's the woman that's the pioneer. She starts. And what is the story? Uh, well, let's run through the slides. Go and show the house. Here's her birthplace. Next slide. She grows up at, at, at her grandfather's house. It's called Grandfather's. We went there and filmed. Next slide. They built onto it. It's now Broughton House. I, I filmed the woman who's a, like a great, great 
granddaughter. I went there with my film crew and Bill Henniger, and you know, we filmed uh, me interviewing her. But those videos never got done. We only got two done, Watson and Wesley. So there's Broden House, and then next one. Here, uh, this is where she lived. Broughton, this is the first hymn writer. Here's Salisbury Cathedral. Next one. And there's her grave marker in the Broughton Parish Church. Now I'll go all the way back to the first slide where we started. This is the hymn she wrote after the tragedy of her wedding day. She was to be married, and she was very excited. And her fiancé went down to bathe in the creek or the small river that ran below the house. And he was tragically drowned. I've never, I, I don't know that I've got a story to equal that one. To be preparing for your wedding a few hours away, and the, somebody comes running up the hill to say, we've got a tragedy down here, and everybody goes to try to revive him, and he dies. And she writes these lines. And I, I've never heard this sung, so I, don't, I can't say that Naomi is a good hymn or a bad tune. I'm just saying this is not real popular in the churches I've happened to be serving. And yet the text is look wonderful. Look at this. Father, whatever of earthly bliss, that's her definition of marriage, whatever of earthly bliss thy sovereign will denies. She says, you have done this, God. You have denied me a life with the man I loved. But if you did it, and if it's your will, I can handle it. Whatever of earthly bliss thy sovereign will denies, accept it at thy throne of grace, let this petition rise. Give me a calm, a thankful heart, from every murmur free, the blessings of thy grace impart, and let me live to thee. Let the sweet hope that thou art mine, my life and death attend. Thy presence through my journey shine and crown my journey's end. Amen. It's a prayer. What a fitting way for the first woman's hymn, a prayer. Turn to 773. Anna Letitia Barbold, as I said, um, we went to see where she grew up. It's in Warrington. And we drove into Warrington, and we spent several hours filming there. And on 773 is the hymn I told you that when I get in my car now and I'm by myself without thinking, I would never do it if you were beside me, if anybody was beside me. But if I'm on my own, I sing this. Now, let me point out the one word that would trip you up. And the word heathen is not an ugly word. Heathen is just the word for somebody who's not a believer. And it sounds like, you know, we, in our society we say, oh, you heathen. You know, we use it as somebody who's really bad, ugly, and all kinds of bad habits, and maybe even bad body odor. And you're a heathen. You dress like a heathen. You talk like a heathen. The word, the, in, her, in her culture, it was just a word for unbelievers. So look at what she writes. Again, the Lord, well, let me stop. What is she, what is she praising here? Sunday the day of resurrection. She's praising the resurrection of Christ, that first Sunday after the crucifixion. Again the Lord of light and life awakes the kindling ray, unseals the eyelids of the morn, and pours, what imagery, and pours increasing day. Oh, what a night. You know, Christ has just died. Oh, what a night was that which wrapped 
the heathen world in gloom. It wrapped the whole world in gloom because if Christ is not risen, we are of all people most to be pitied. Oh, what a night was that which wrapped the heathen world in gloom. Oh, what a sun which rose this day. She could have written S-O-N, Son of God is rising, but she writes S-U-N. Oh, what a sun which rose this day, triumphant from the tomb, exclamation point. This day, this day, Sunday, resurrection, this day be grateful homage paid and loud hosanna sung. Let gladness dwell in every heart and praise on every tongue. Now she looks to the future. 10,000 different lips shall join to hail this welcome morn, which scatters blessings where? The resurrection of Christ scatters its blessings where? Which scatters blessings from its wings to nations yet unborn. That is inspired. That is a marvelous text. Well, now turn to 391. Those are the two pioneers. The next one, if you want to take on a tough challenge, try to find out something about this woman. I, can't, I just, I can't. Dorothy Thrupp. I don't know anything about Dorothy Thrupp. I wonder if William Bradbury knew anything about her, but he, he didn't mind writing a tune for her. Because Bradbury writes all of our music, you know, starting with Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. I mean, Bradbury has dominated our life. But we sing this on my tour, and I'll throw this next week to Keith Lancaster or Christopher Armstead or Randall, or Christopher Armstead or Randall Onstead, and all these song leaders going with me. And somebody, I'll say, who among you can leave Savior like a shepherd lead it? And everybody knows how to lead it, Savior. But why is it significant? In verse three, it's this word. Um, it's the word early. Thou hast promised to receive us, poor and sinful though we be. Thou hast mercy to relieve us, grace to cleanse and power to free. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, early let us turn to thee. Early. That's the only clue that she's writing to young people. And you need to do this early in life. Tiny little clue. Early let us turn to thee. Blessed Jesus, blessed early, let us turn to thee. Savior like a shepherd lead us. Great hymn, and we'll sing it like we've sung it all of our life next week, but we haven't sung it probably in 20 years. You know, it's, so there's the first three, and then we come to Charlotte Elliott. So turn to 924. Now, Charlotte Elliott was an invalid, and the story you'll read in all the books, as far as I know, is, is true. It was told by Caesar Milan. Caesar Milan was in town preaching in a meeting. Uh, uh, Charlotte lived down by, um, uh, right down on the water, down next to Brighton. Do you know where Brighton is? And then right next to the little town called Hove, H-O-V-E. That's where she's buried. Years ago, I went there. I wanted to see the grave of Charlotte Elliott. And all of her relatives were preachers. Here's a great big tombstone to the Elliott family. And here's this Elliott and this Elliott and this Elliott. Nobody's heard of any of those people. And here is Charlotte Elliott that Billy Graham, and who was his soloist, <laughs> turns into uh, George Beverly Shea, you know, singing this in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, this just dominates and it just becomes, and that's why this guy that was preaching at Little Hursley Church, you know, where we start our tour, Roger Edwards said to me, can you sing that song? That's the one they were singing when I went forward in 1954 at that Billy Graham crusade you know, in London. And uh, 
Caesar Milan said to her, are you coming tonight to church? And she said, no, I can't get off my couch. I'm, I'm ill. And, and he said, well, then just praise him as you are. Come if you can, but if you need to stay on this couch all night, just praise him where you are, Charlotte. So she writes it. It has a lot of verses. And uh, William Bradbury, of course, <laughs> writes the music. You're going to get tired of hearing Bradbury, but without Bradbury, uh, you know, we, we would have to bring in some other people to write good tunes. So she writes, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, will welcome, pardon, welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. And the finale, just as I am, thy love unknown has broken every barrier down. Now to be thine, Yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come. Um, I was talking to some people this week that said that they felt that is the most popular song ever written by a woman. I had to think through that. And, uh, you know, I'm really partial to Francis Ridley Havergal. And, of course, um, Fanny Crosby writes 7,000 hymns. Some of them have got to be pretty good. But... Um, you know, they, they have a point. I mean, people who don't even go to church much, or they've heard that at funerals, and they've heard it on television. It's so, it's been out there. So let's take a look at her. Now let's go back through these for a moment. We've already did her, and there's the... So here's Anna Letitia Barbo, again, the Lord of Light and Life, great biography of her. Next one. And here's Charlotte Elliott, just as I am, quite petite. When I got down to the bottom of that tombstone in Hove, I was, I was down here on my knees, and she's the last person. She's the most famous person in the history of the Elliott family. But here, all of her brothers and cousins and uncles, and they all preached, you know. And so they're all up here. And way down here, Charlotte Elliott. I could hardly get a photo of her tombstone. Okay, back to the main list, number one. Now let's take a look at 342. Uh, what I like about here, why I call this one of my 15 favorites, is the very idea that Ann Richter came up with was, we were not there when, when Christ was scourged. We were not there when he taught along the lake. We were not there, we were not there, we were not there. But we believe that it happened. Interesting idea for a song. So she writes, we saw thee not when thou didst come to this poor world of sin and death nor yet beheld thy cottage home in that despised Nazareth. But we believe, what do we believe? What do we believe, Anne? We believe thy footsteps trod its streets and plains, thou son of God. We saw thee not when lifted high amid that wild and savage crew, nor heard we that imploring cry, forgive, they know not what they do. But we believe the deed was done. We weren't there, but we believe you were crucified. We believe the deed was done that shook the earth and veiled the sun because darkness came over 
where the cross was. What a great line. We believe the deed was done that shook the earth and veiled the sun. We gazed not in the open tomb where once thy mangled body lay, nor saw thee in that upper room, nor met thee on the open way, but we believe that angels said, why seek the living with the dead? That's what they said when they came to the open tomb that morning. And finally, we walk not with the chosen few who saw thee from the earth ascend, who raised to heaven their wondering view, then low to earth all prostrate bend, but we believe that human eyes saw you ascend, beheld that journey to the skies. That's a great hymn, and we sang that a lot when I was growing up in Detroit, Michigan. And who wrote the music? Finally, somebody from our heritage. Noel. That's old Noel Shaw. And, uh, you know, he was killed in an automobile accident, I mean a train accident in 1875 in McKinney, Texas, I think, north of Dallas. So he probably had some more to give us. But he wrote a great tune here, and he called it after himself. I mean, Felix Mendelssohn names his best tune Mendelssohn, and, you know, they all do that. Bradbury probably calls his Bradbury. So here's, here's an old Shaw giving us a pretty good tune, and he names it for himself. Now I'll go down to the one that I said we just have got to rescue this woman, 634. Here's Elizabeth Mills. And forget about the chorus. I don't think she wrote this chorus. And here's a woman, I just think, you know, somebody's improving on the hymn and they turn it into a, a, a post-Civil War American song. But she's in London, and when does she write this? 1836, or it's published in 1836. She might have written it several years before it was actually published. But she's dying, and she takes pen and paper, and she writes... O land of rest. Well, what, what is that? That sounds like heaven to me. O land of rest, for thee I sigh. When will the moment come when I shall lay my armor by and dwell in peace at home? To Jesus Christ I fled for rest. He bade me cease to roam and lean for succor on his breast till he conduct me home. I sought at once my Savior's side. No more my steps shall roam. With him, I'll brave death's chilling tide and reach my heavenly home. That's what she writes. And that needs to be, um, what's the one about, uh, there is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. See, when, when the guy who writes that, I mean, he's just gotten the word that his little niece died. And now before he can get over to his brother's house, Howard and Lucy, and the, the yellow ribbon is around the house. This is outside Kansas City. And, um, and he says to Howard, I'm so sorry. And, and before he got to the house, a second messenger told him the second little girl had died. The disease was so contagious. I forgot, scarlet fever or something like that. And he, and he says to his brother, I'm so sorry. And the yellow is around the house. And they've raised the window, and Howard and Lucy are sobbing, and he, he goes back to his office. He was the choir director, and he writes that song for the funeral. And, they, and, and again, they can't go in the house. The funeral's outside, and Howard and Lucy are hearing it. But he writes, he's so delicate. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest, near to the heart of God. It, it's, it's just soft. And we've had it here, a chorus, 
We'll work, we'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work, we'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work, we'll work till Jesus comes, and we'll be gathered home. Well, when I was in the 11th grade at Great Lakes Christian High School, and we all had to work in the vineyard picking grapes, you know, that's how that school survived. We would always sing this song when we were marching to work. We'll work, we'll work. We would add words like, we'll work for Jeff. He was the guy. Jeff Ellis was our teacher sending us out. We'll work for Jeff. We'll work for Eugene, Eugene Perry. Those are the two men who kicked me out of school that year. And, and we're, you know, we're going to school singing, we'll work, we'll work. So I didn't realize and for many years that that was the wrong music for this song. And so next week I will say to Keith and Lancaster and all the others, I give you a challenge. Show us a tune already written or write one that this would give a, this woman could rest in peace. Okay, go to uh, go to 684. We're going to sing that in the library next week at Pepperdine House. Now here's Sarah Adams' house. Uh, great song. By the way, if you're leaving London and you're going to Cambridge, so you're going northeast. You're in your car and you're on. What's that freeway? Number 11, I think. So you're on Freeway 11, and you're getting close to Cambridge. You're closer to Cambridge than to London. On the left-hand side, there's a little cemetery back there. And you can actually see it from the road. I tested it. I think this is the second hardest grave I've spent trying to find in the last thousand years you know, that I've been researching. And I finally knew I was close, and I got into the town, and I went to the minister's. I asked where the minister lived, small town, Church of England. I knocked on the door, and he opened the door, and I said, I'm looking for uh, the grave of Sarah Flower Adams, and I know I'm close. And I'll never forget, he's looking at me, and he does this. He looks to see how far his wife is along in dinner. And he says, yeah, we got time. <laughs> and he says, honey, I'll be right back. And she yells, what? And he never answers. He charges to his car. And he said, keep up with me. <laughs> Boy, he is driving. We're going through bumps, and I'm trying to stay with him. And here's this little cemetery, and that's where she's buried. And I said to him, what is that freeway out there? That's Freeway 11 between London and Cambridge. Wow. Well, this grave shouldn't be that hard to find, but it's tough for me to find it. But you've seen the movie, and they're playing Nearer My God to Thee, Nearer to Thee, as the Titanic goes under the water. And from all the eyewitnesses, that's a true story, that the orchestra just kept playing. I mean, you know you're going to die. There is no way out. The women and children are on the few lifeboats and the elderly. And so you've come to grips with it. Life can happen where you've got very little warning. You're in the middle of the Atlantic here, friend, and you're not getting out. So how do you, do you want to cry? Is that how you want to go out? Do you want to scream? Or do you just want to take a deep breath and play nearer my God to thee? And of course, some of the lines are really appropriate. And that, that's what they're playing. Now let's talk, talk about translation. Let's go to 689. And here are the people I admire the most. And uh, it, here is, uh, on 689, this one is um, Jane. I mean, this one, yeah, Jane Borthwick. I think her, her sister is Sarah. They live in Edinburgh, Scotland. And they translate from the German to the English. And she translates this. Who wrote this? See it at the bottom? Katharina von Schlegel. Good German name. And she takes her hymn and puts it in English. And whose music does she use? Sibelius. 
Finlandia. I mean, wow. And to take these words and sing it to Finlandia, there aren't many more beautiful pieces of music. And, then, and this is perfect for it. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. Oh, wow. And the last one. Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow for God, love's purest joys restored, be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed we shall meet at last. But she does some others like 698. Turn just a few pages. I love this one from Benjamin Schmolke. Now, um, I'm going to um, Baxter's father's funeral. This is Baxter Banowski. I, t I tease him about his name. It's, what other name would be more resonant in Church Christ than Baxter and Banowski? Maybe Lipscomb Harding. If somebody was named Lipscomb Harding, that might compete with ba Baxter Banowski for Pepperdine. Baxter was our first president, Banowski was our fourth. Uh, the, it's a high standard to live up to, actually. <laughs> but, um, Probably not going to make it. <laughs> but, um, not with the time left. <laughs> I, I was privileged to preach Howard White's funeral here in the Stauffer Chapel. <coughs> and then I, I gave the eulogy at Norwell Young's, you know, and that was in Firestone Fieldhouse. And uh, I would have preached J.P. Sanders, but his, his son was a gospel preacher, and Michael should have done it, and he did. But Michael called us and he said, I want Jerry, I want you and Helen Young and Prentice Matter to come and each speak. So we went to Las Vegas. And, uh, and it's, it's the funeral for J.P. Sanders. And I got up and spoke and Helen spoke and Prentice spoke. And now we're singing. And I don't know how the rows, I thought they were just straight across. They must have been bent a little bit. I was over here. And I'm looking across the aisle, and I can see both Helen and um, Gloria silhouetted. I can see quite a bit of both of their faces, the side of their faces. And their heads are up. You know, maybe the hymn was up on the, I don't know. Their heads are up, and they're singing together. They came out in 1957 together to save the school. And, uh, and Norville has died and been buried, and now J.P. is gone. And these two women who, who are going to live for quite a while, and they're singing. And my, I don't know if your mind works like this, but my mind takes a photograph. That may be, I don't know, being a historian. And I'll show you where the photograph came. It came almost at the end of the hymn, um, but first let me lead into it, and then I'll show you. I'm watching this, and their heads are up. My Jesus, as thou wilt, oh, may thy will be mine. Into thy hand of love I would my all resign. Through sorrow and through joy, conduct me as thine own, and help me still to say, my Lord, thy will be done. They're bearing their husbands. 
My Jesus, as thou wilt, if needy, here and poor, give me thy people's bread, their portion rich and sure, the manna of thy word let my soul feed upon. And if all else should fail, my Lord, thy will be done. I'm watching this, and I'm having trouble singing now. I'm watching these two women that I adore, I love. I've known them for years. Helen Young and Gloria Sanders. I mean, they're at the top of the chart for me. And I'm watching them, and their heads are up. And, and they're singing so triumphantly. And we come to the last verse. And this is where my, my camera is getting ready. I know my mind. It's about to take a picture. My Jesus, as thou wilt, all shall be well with me. Each changing future scene. And their future scene is going to be without husbands. I mean, they've got children and grandchildren. But each future, each changing future scene, I gladly trust with thee. And the photograph was taken between the word straight and the word on in this second to the last line. As I watch them with heads up, and I can't, I can't quite describe it with enough power, but they were singing straight, with their heads up, straight to my home above. I travel calmly on. Life is not over. We've buried Norval. We've buried JP. We're going to keep traveling. We're going we're to travel straight, <laughs> but we're going to travel calmly on. And my, my mind took that photograph. I can see it. And then we ended, and we will sing, in life or death, my Lord, that all will be done. How do you take that in German and write it that beautifully in English? That's a gift I don't understand. But that's, that's the Borthwick system. They're great at it. Turn to 85. Have you ever thought how easy it would be to write children's uh, hymns? We have some great children's hymns. It's not easy to write a children's hymn. You would think, well, I could, oh, I could write something for my little granddaughter. Uh, no, you couldn't. <laughs> Let me give you two examples of really great song leaders who tried and failed. Their names, I think, were Charles Wesley and Isaac Watts. <laughs> They gave it a shot, writing hymns for the little children. All of that changed that day in 1848 when that letter arrived at Hursley Parish Church. We go there on the 14th, Tuesday the 14th. There'll be 40 of us, counting the coach road, pull up there, and we go in, and the ladies have fixed us lunch, and we will sing there where John Keeble preached. And then we'll go outside where... John Keeble and his wife, Charlotte, are buried side by side, died within four months. John Keeble, great hymn writer. And then we'll go up to the house because the woman, the, the surgeon who lives up there, the greatest hand surgeon in England, and his wife, who's a politician, love my groups. And they want them to come up. And if, I'm not, if they're not home, they'll say, Jerry, go on in. <laughs> and take 30 people and walk through my house. And, but they'll do it. And, and then we'll go in the backyard and see the flowers and all that. It's a beautiful setting. And in that house, that old rectory, because John Keeble was the rector of two or three churches, a letter arrived from this girl who is listed here as C.F. Alexander. Well, she married Alexander. This is Cecile Francis Humphreys. 
And when she wrote this, she wasn't married. So I'm griping again. You know, the hymn ought to be. And everybody called her Fanny. She's just Fanny Humphreys. She's not Miss, Mrs. Alexandria. It's Fanny Humphreys. And she sends to the great John Keeble, professor of poetry at Oxford. When he died, what did they do at Oxford? Built Keeble College. Has there been a college since then? Not, not, maybe one. I mean, Keeble College at Oxford, you want to go there. It's a, you know, it's hallowed. And it's named for this man. And the letter arrives, and she says something like this. Now this is Rushford's imagination. But you'll give me freedom to you know, just imagine. She says, dear, dear Dr. Keeble, or dear Pastor Keeble, or dear Mr. Keeble, you are one of the greatest hymn writers in the English language. You're the press professor of poetry at Oxford. You have helped me a great deal. I'm just a young girl over here, young woman, I think she was 20, over here in Ireland. And I've written some hymns to little children. And if you think they're any good, would you be willing, oh great man, would you be willing to write a foreword to my book? Keeble read them and recognized he was in the presence of genius. And so he, he writes, um, he writes the foreword. I wish I could give you the figure. It's over a quarter of a million copies sold before the century was out. And it's just a small little book. It's called Hymns for Little Children. And we have this one. And, and who put it to music? Our own L.O. Sanderson. And I've asked Leon, his son, several times, what, where did your dad write this? What, we think Springfield, Illinois. But. So look at what she writes. The little flower that opens, the little bird that sings, God made their glowing colors, he made their tiny wings. The cold wind in the winter, the pleasant summer sun, the ripe fruits in the garden, he made them every one. He gave us eyes to see them and lips that we might tell how great is God Almighty who has made all things well. Now, did you see the TV series that, you know, in the eight, 1980s, at the end of the 70s, All Creatures Great and Small? Lori and I did not miss many episodes of that. I don't know how many years that was on. And that was the story of the animal doctor. What do they call an animal doctor? Veterinarian. <laughs> Veterinarian. <laughs> I have to take my wife with me. I'm not a real sharp lecturer anymore. Veterinarian. What's his name? James Harriet. <laughs> James Harriet. When you know that great series on James Harriet and all of his books, he takes from this chorus. And here's the four titles of his book: All Things Bright and Beautiful. That's book one. All Creatures Great and Small, book two. All Things Wise and Wonderful, book three. You got it. The Lord God made them all. Book four. When they sent that CBL, CBS film crew out to film me for that thing that came out on Easter Sunday, I think they came out in February, and Easter Sunday in 2015 was April 5. This, this didn't get on the TV show. You know, um, but the woman was interviewing me, that CBS woman, she's good. And the, you know, they were filming me, and I was going over this, and her eyes were getting wider. She had two little children. And after I said, I told the story, and she wrote, all things bright and beautiful, her eyes got wider. All creatures, great and small, her eyes got a little wider. This is inside my library in my house. All things wise and wonderful. 
you know, the mic is going. She's inter interviewing me, and she goes, the Lord God made them all. <laughs> I said, well, you just ruined that take. <laughs> but you're right. That's how it ends. And she said, oh, my mother taught me that. I didn't know that was a hymn. And I said, well, it's in our hymn book. <laughs> so this is Fanny um, Humphreys. And then she marries Alexander. And she does things like, um, like 399. She says to me. Hey, Jerry, can you yeah. say something? Uh, Karen, we were home on Sunday morning, and Karen said, Come quick, Jerry's on TV. <laughs> and so we went in there, and then we backed it up and recorded it. We kept it for a long time, but it's on YouTube now. Yes, well, and it's on my site. When you go to Jerry Rushford's Selected Works, Pepperdine has the site, and then that's been put on there. I, I made a copy of that and played it for my guys at prison. Oh, is that right? I really did. It's only nine minutes long, and it's all for. Uh, the uh, Gettys, and uh, what's the great hymn? Yes. Uh, it's, it's, what is it? In Christ Alone, Christ alone yeah. yeah. And they wanted somebody to tell some old stories, but and they didn't tell me to do this. But I, you know, I said, "In Christ Alone" is the greatest hymn written in the 21st century so far. We're <coughs> only 15 years into the century, but it's clearly number one at the moment. And they didn't ask me to say that, but. My president, Andy Benton, he noticed it and wrote me and said, that was a great line. Was that yours? Or? <laughs> yeah, it was mine. They didn't give me a script. The stories I thought were the best, they didn't use. You know, I thought there was some great, they used, they wanted Handel's Messiah. And they wanted Rock of Ages. That's not a great story. You know, so I told them some great stories, but you know, at CVS, they're going to use what they want. But... Um, Here's an example. See her name down there? Cecile Francis Alexander. Here she is again. She doesn't just write children's hymns. She says, honey, what are you preaching on this week? And he said, I'm doing uh, When Jesus Stilled the Storm on Galilee. And she writes a hymn every week to go along with his sermon. Now, when I take this show on the road, you know, I always say, and the minister's wife faints when I say it at every town I go to. I've been trying to get uh, Gloria here to write a hymn every week for Johnny, and so far she, you know, she said, "Well, if if he would write the hymn, I'll write the music." And you know, and obviously they're not going to do that. But <clears throat> she said, "I'll write the uh, I'll write the poetry if you tell me what you're going to preach." And the music here is a very easy tune to sing. Galilee. Why would it be named Galilee? The story takes place on the Sea of Galilee. Okay, let's go to 139. Now, I really love 139. This maybe wouldn't be everybody's favorite. And this, I think, is maybe the hardest grave I had to find. I looked a long time for Anna Letitia Waring. She's buried outside <coughs> Bristol. But this is just beautiful. Um, and, and the music, of course, is by Mendelssohn. So how can you beat that? And a Letitia wearing, in heavenly love abiding, no change my heart shall fear, and safe is such confiding, for nothing changes here. And then you've got the Mendelssohn tune called Seasons. Um, and then turn to 900. I recommend you do this. I did this once in my life. Do you know, do you know the letters of Samuel Rutherford? They're in any Christian bookstore. There's 365 of them. So I bought the book, and one year I just kept it by, in the drawer next to the bed, and I read one, night, uh, one letter a night for the year. And uh, you could do worse. Rutherford is in jail, and um, you know he's always in trouble with the Scottish government. 
and, uh, and long after he has died, he died in the 1600s, what's the date here? Anne Cousin, well, she's Anne Ross, this is her married name, in 1857, takes all of his letters and pulls out lines from his letters and, and makes them rhyme and turns it into a letter. She writes 19 verses. So I went to see the house where she did it, Irvine, Scotland, right there by Ayer, Robert Burns' country. And I was going to get on the boat and go out to the island of Aaron. And I found the local historian. And, he, and I said to him, her, her husband was a minister in the Free Church of Scotland, not the Church of Scotland, the Free Church. Can you tell me where the manse, that's what Presbyterians call their church, the man, their house, where would the manse have been in this town for the Free Church, the Free Church manse in 1857? And he thought and he thought and he, he said, I don't know right now, but where are you going? I said, I'm going out to the island of Aaron for the day and I'll be back about four. He said, I will find that out. And he did. He was waiting for me at the dock. I came back, he was so thrilled, and we went over and I took all these photographs of the house where she wrote this line. Um, the sands of time. Just look at how it starts. The sands of time are sinking. This is from something Rutherford wrote from jail to his church in Anwath. And when I went to Anwath, A-N-W-O-T-H, the roof is gone, but the old church is still there. And he knows he's dying. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight. But day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. So Emmanuel's the name given to Jesus in, in, in the Gospels. And um, this is the last line of his last letter. And so she picks it up and makes it the end of every one of her 19 verses that Samuel Rutherford is saying, glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. And it's, it's just a beautiful hymn. And what's the name of the tune? What else could it be? Rutherford. I mean, it's all his words. She just put them all together and, and created 19. Um, take a look at uh, 314. I went back to Melrose, Scotland four different times, striking out each time. And... Um, Finally, the last time, I went to the tourist information desk, and I said, I've been coming here to Melrose um, a long time, and, uh, and I can't find <clears throat> the house. Um, oh, wait a minute. No, that's not right. Um, when I went there, I, I went to the church first. I went to the church, and the organist came and greeted me, and I said... Uh, you know, in my country, we love Elizabeth Clefane. She wrote some great music, and, uh, and we sing Beneath the Cross of Jesus a lot. And I just wondered, is there a historical marker to her here? And he said, you know what there used to be? Well, we did with that. He started walking down the halls and then all the rooms, and now we're into the junk room, and there it was, in the junk room. He found it back there, you know, he pulls it out, embarrassed, he's wiping it off, and and I took some pictures, and it was two colors in red ink, part of just a gorgeous plaque. And I said, I'm going to bring my next hymn story here. He said, we'll have this up. And, but it was several years before we came. And I brought a group up there, and we went in, and I've been telling them all about the plaque. And again, I'm greeted by the minister, the organist, somebody, and we, it wasn't up. And I said, well, I have a suggestion. There's a junk room here. I've been in it. 
And so we went back in the junk room, and there it was. And they pulled it out and wiped it off, and we sang. But as my group went to the coach, I gathered these two together. as a woman and a man, the organist, and I think she was the secretary. And I said, please hear what I'm about to say. I am not in any way trying to be sarcastic. But truly, if you're not interested, I work in a, at a university that we would be interested. We would, we would polish it and keep it up somewhere. And I'd pay to have it shipped. I would love to have it. And it's not real important to you. I'm not trying to shame you, but if, you, you know, if it's going to stay in a junk room, let me have it. Well, as you know, I've given that speech a lot of times in my life, and sometimes you get these things, and they never sent it to me. I, I did embarrass them. They said, never again will it be in the junk room if 40 Americans are coming over here to sing Elizabeth Clefane. Well, what else? I mean, this is a great hymn, but what was the other hymn she wrote that's in our book, and it's on page uh, 641. Now, we don't sing this with much. I guess maybe when I was growing up or something. But she had a brother that was the uh, black sheep of the, you know, black sheep of the, of the family. And she wrote this hymn for him about the 90 and 9. There were 90 and 9 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. So this is Luke 15. One sheep is away, but one was out on the hills far away, far off from the gates of gold. Away on the mountains, wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care. So... Um, I was 14 years old. You'll say, you'll say, no, this didn't happen in America. Yeah, it did. On Saturday night, Tennessee Ernie Ford had a, had a show. Channel 4, NBC. And my mother let me stay up to hear it. And he always sang a gospel song at the end, Tennessee Ernie Ford. And <laughs> the night he sang this, was a, one of those turning point nights for me. I'm not used to crying in front of my mother and watching television, but I was wiped out. I mean, he's a great singer, but about the one who was lost. Then I go to Canada to preach at Waterloo Church Christ for Jeff Ellis, and he said, let's take a drive this afternoon. And he takes me way up in northern Ontario to a churchyard, and he, we go around to the graveyard in the back, and he said, this is Elizabeth Clefane's brother. He died here. He never could stop drinking. He died from alcoholism. She prayed for him every day. But do you know on a given day, and he told me what it was, the day he died, on that day, Christians, regardless of what their affiliation is, denomination, from all over Ontario drive to this church and sing that song around his grave. Did you know that? I didn't know that. And I went to high school in Ontario, but I didn't know that story. Um, how, do, how did we know that she wrote these two songs? True story, Moody Sankey, we're almost done here, and I, obviously I didn't get one-fourth into my class, so we'll pick up next year. Um, <laughs> Moody and Sankey, 1873, Dwight L. Moody, preacher. That's the first time anybody had ever seen the sign. Dwight L. Moody, preacher of the gospel, Ira Sankey, singer of the gospel. And Sankey said, I suddenly thought, greater of myself. I'm a singer of the gospel. <laughs> and uh, they, they were, their headquarters for Edinburgh, and they had a big outdoor service that night, but they took the train to Glasgow. And in Glasgow, 
a packet of mail arrived for Dwight L. Moody. And now Sankey is saying, well, there goes the ride back. He's not going to be talking to me. So he buys a newspaper. He calls it a penny newspaper. That's probably right. It costs a penny. And he reads the whole paper because he can't talk to him. And he's still going through his mail. And then he tries to engage him in conversation. It's not working. He does something I've done several times. If you don't have any other, he reads the paper a second time. He doesn't have a book. Nothing else in sight. Nothing worse than not having anything to read. So he reads it again, and the second time through, he found what editors call filler, a little filler at the bottom. And it was this poem, The Ninety and Nine, Elizabeth Clefane, uh, and uh, this uh, town of Melrose, Scotland. And uh, so he tries to tell Moody, but Moody's still reading his mail. Now they're back in Edinburgh, and unbeknownst to Sankey, Moody is preaching from Luke 15. And Sankey had tore that out and put it in his pocket. Had no music to it, it was just a poem. But every book I've read swears this is true, and Sankey never changed his story. That that night, when Dwight L. Moody preached to 15,000 people outdoors, before PA systems, <laughs> you know, with his barrel-chested, booming voice, Dwight L. Moody, 15,000 people. And he's preaching about the one who was lost, you know, 90 and 9, the one who was lost, and the woman with ten coins and the one that was lost, and the father with two sons and one was lost. The importance of the one. And uh, suddenly when the sermon is over, Moody turns to his pianist up there, Ira Sankey, and says, Do you have an appropriate song? <laughs> they work together like this all the time. But the answer was no. <laughs> if you'd given me a little more time. No, I don't have an appropriate song. But you don't say that. 15,000 people are waiting to know what are we singing. And Sankey says, I pulled the poem out, laid it on the ledge, <laughs> hit a couple of notes, and made this tune up as he went along. And he said, I swear, I never changed one note after that. It came to me, I played it, 15,000 people sang it. Well then, he's asking around, who is this woman? They said, well, she lived in Melrose. He goes to Melrose. And of course, she's dead. She didn't live to be 40. She never married. She lived. She was a school teacher. She had a nickname, the Sunbeam of Melrose. And, um, and that's the story I started to tell. I went back to Melrose and couldn't find the house. It was called Bridge Inn House. Where would you look for Bridge Inn House? By a river. I couldn't find it. And on my fourth trip, I went into the tourist office and I said, I, I can't find Bridge Inn House. And the woman said, well, I don't think I know. And behind the wall, it didn't go all the way to the ceiling, behind the wall, a woman's voice said, I think I know where that house is, but I'm afraid to tell you because it might be a, you know, a false trip, wild goose chase, you know. And I said, I'll take any kind of wild chase. I can't afford to keep flying over here every year, try to find this house. So she came out, and I met her face to face, and she opened the map and said, well, it's actually not in, right in Melrose. As you head out to the northeast, and you cross the Tweed River, it's the only river there, the Tweed, then take that next turning to the right after you cross the river, and then bend back in, about 100 yards back there. There's a grouping of homes back there, and that house, you know, you know, that bridge was washed out 70 years ago or something. 
So it, it was the bridge in house, but the bridge isn't there. Well, this sounded hopeful, so I take my rental car, and now I'm going down this lane, and I see a man coming with a most beautiful dog. Turns out his name is, the man's name is Raymond Cleghorn. I don't know that. But he comes down, and I roll down the window, and I pet the dog, and I say, oh, beautiful dog. And uh, I said to him, I have a photograph here of a house from 1934. It's in one of my hymn books. You know, I have all kinds of history of hymns. This was a 1934 book, and it has a photo, black and white. And he looked at it, not, not real quickly. I mean, he leaned in my car. He said, no, no, it's not around here. I said, well, thank you. I appreciate your time. He walked on. I thought, well, I'm still going to drive up there. I drove up. There was a guy working in the yard. And I said to him, I'm looking for an old house. It used to be called Bridge Inn House. And he said, yeah, it's right there. <laughs> and he said, uh, no, no, he said, no, not that, I mean, it's, yeah, it's around, it's, it's the one on the other side right there, yeah, go around, you, yeah, it's fine, go, so I go around this house, and there it is, I'm going to look at the photograph, oh my goodness, this is where Elizabeth Clefane wrote Beneath the Cross of Jesus, and, uh, and uh, there were 19 and 9, and so now I'm down on my knees with my Canon AE-1, this was many years ago, and I'm lining up this photo, and I did not hear the man coming behind me, or his dog. And he actually, he scared me to death. He said, did you find that house you were looking for? And I, I, you know, I jumped up and I said, yes, I did, here it is. And he said, that's my house! <laughs> And I said, well, I gave you the picture. He grabs the book from me. He's looking at it, and he's looking up four, you know, four room, number of chimneys. Yeah, it's his house, all right. He said, what'd you say happened here? I said, well, there was a woman lived here, and she wrote hymns. He said, come on in and tell my wife. This, happens, this has happened to me well over 100 times. I'm used, I'm used to this. It took her less than 60 seconds to have tea in front of me with some kind of scone or cookie. This just happens to me all the time. English, Scottish, British people, are, they love to offer you tea or cookies or crumpets. And I settled down in their living room and told them the story of that house. And uh, I went into a house one time and they were so happy, I, they said, can we sing to you? Well, yeah, I didn't come to be entertained. And they, one had an accordion, and the other got on the piano, and they were almost doing a little dance, you know, and it, just because I showed up, and I was a guest, we'll, we'll play for you. And uh, I've gotten it home after home after home. I wasn't surprised when he said, you must come in. So let's see, we got through Clefane. And now let's see the sl quick slides that uh, uh, the people we've just talked about. So stop there. So here's Cecile Francis Alexander, the greatest children's writer of all time. And go to the next one. And she makes him magazine. I have every copy of him, which will end up in Payson Library, dating back many, many years. Not this far. She made the cover in April 1954, volume five, number two. And the next one is uh, Frances Habergold. That's where we'll pick up next year. She is the greatest woman, uh, certainly the most voluminous in British history. So there's her picture. And let's, take, let's do a few real quick. And this is her father who writes all the great uh, tunes. And the next one, 
and she's knitting here. She never marries. She dies at 42. Next one. And this one, she's got her hand up, and we see her handwriting. And the next one, uh, same picture, but she's holding a, bi a book or a Bible or a hymnal. And the next one, and now she's writing a poem. And the next one, and now we see the old church and the house where she was born. And here's her grave, but that's just an etching. Now the next one. And I've never seen the house when it had this much ivy on it. It doesn't have it anymore. That's the rectory where she was born. The next one. Now there's an actual photograph. The ivy is still there. There's the house where her parents live. There's the church. By the way, Astley Church goes back, that, that community goes back to Doomsday Book, which is 20 years after William the Conqueror. So that's 1086. 1060. 1086, there were people living in Astley Parish. That's how old this is. And to, for me to get the coach back there in two weeks, there's only two roads, and one of them tear the tar out of your top of your roof, and the driver gets mad at me, and I can never remember which one it is. And I tell him <laughs> to research it. Don't get mad at me if your coach is. There's only one way to get back. Because I said to him, we're going back centuries. Every few feet, we're going back another century. So here it is. Now the next slide. And now this is sort of what it looks like today. She lived, she, her rooms were on that top floor. Next one. And there's just sort of the church itself. Next one. And now I'm leading my group, and I'm out. Uh, and now we're at her grave, and I'm leaning over the next one. So now I've asked somebody to go down here. And you know who's missing is John and Claudette Wilson. So maybe John went down there. And he, he's down on the road, and he's looking up. And so I'm over here to the right, and then that's Bill Adrian. Bill and uh, his wife are here this week. And this is Gary, uh, Gary Scott, the song leader at Sierra Madre. Gary, was it? Baker. Baker. And this is Terry Gardner and Connie. They come to Pepperdine a lot. And this guy here was a descendant of Elizabeth Clefane. He showed up while we were there. And we said, well, sing with us. Come get in our photo. He had a couple dogs, and he was walking them, and he was a relative of Clefane. So there's the church, and behind here is the house, and now we're looking up where she's buried with her parents. We didn't get very far, but, and that's not very scholarly, but I love the woman hymn writers, and I hope you found some of that interesting. We need to go. Tonight is Jerry Taylor. Who's leading singing tonight? Oh, I wonder if I already knew that. Randy Gill, what are you leading tonight, Randy? Anything you picked up here? Because it's Andy's last time, we are, in, especially in the Songfest, doing a lot of old favorites. Really? All right. Oh, I'll be there. <laughs> that starts at 6.30? Yes. And then at the end of the evening, Andy speaks, right? Gives, he's giving us his dream for the future, or marching orders. Wow. That's, a, that's my group. Huh? Oh, are you in this photo? I'm in that Oh. What year is this? When did you go with me? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I can see me in the picture. <laughs> oh, I know. It's 2013. Oh, yeah, I yes. know when the Wilsons went. Yeah, and yeah, This is six years ago. Yeah. Well, thank you all for coming. See you down at Firestone in a little bit. Hope you've had a great week. Thank you.